I'm going to start a brand new series today, and I've got a brand new book entitled Christian Philosophy, and it's also got a, uh, a work book or study guide that goes along with it, and I am very excited about this. I've actually been planning on doing this for over two years. I taught on this subject of Christian philosophy. I can't remember the exact timing, but I'm sure it's over six years ago. It might have been seven or eight years ago that I began to start teaching on what I call Christian philosophy, and this is based on Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And I'll get into these scriptures and show you the whole logic behind this and why I came up with this name. But I've taught on this before, and in the beginning I used to just teach on this from a scriptural perspective about how we relate to God and how our relationship with God is based on the foundation of His Word and how that we've got to understand that God's a good God, that He's not the one that's punishing us and, uh, you know, things like that. And it was all basically doctrinal type of things about our personal relationship with the Lord. And then about, I think it was either two or three years ago, I expanded this teaching to be what I call Christian Philosophy 2, and that began to start talking about the way a Christian should have a world view or an opinion towards the moral and social issues of our day. And I taught on that two or three years ago, and I mean we had a huge response, some positive, some negative. We got a lot of criticism over it, but the majority of people that watched our program really enjoyed it. And I mean, it addressed some social issues, moral issues in our society that I think ministers should be speaking out on much, much more than they are. And so anyway, it was just, it made a huge impact. I was really pleased with the way that people were testifying about how the Lord changed their lives through this. And ever since then, for the last two to three years, I have decided that I was going to expand this whole teaching on Christian philosophy to not only talk about our personal relationship with the Lord and about only spiritual things, but to expand it to what the Bible has to say about the philosophy or the worldview that we should have towards moral, social issues. And I've been excited about it, and I decided to print this new book, and this new book is different than any of my other books in the sense that it not only has scriptural teaching about things concerning our personal relationship with the Lord, but then when I start talking about these social moral issues, we've got charts, we've got graphs, we've got statistics, we've got examples and things like this. And this is a different book than I've ever printed before. So about half of the book is similar to the way that I've done books before. It's just doctrinal teaching from the Word of God. And then the other half is taking principles from the Word of God and applying it towards these uh, hot topics such as homosexuality, abortion, and evolution. And uh, it's going to have charts, graphs, statistics. And so the second half of the book is really kind of a reference book. And I think that what this is going to do is, uh, as we go through this, I think that you will really see the benefit of this, and it's going to give you a place to go that if somebody is challenging you on your belief about something, you can go and you can pull up stats, not only scriptures, but you can pull up uh, statistics on different things such as abortion, homosexuality. It's going to have a lot of information and proof and pictures and things about um, evolution, 
And I think it's going to be a great resource, kind of like a textbook that Christians can use to defend their faith. So I am very excited about this, and I want to encourage you to please take advantage of these materials. And let me just jump into these verses. The Lord actually started showing me this out of Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 8. I wish I had time to put it into context, but I've tried that approach before, and sometimes it'll take me 30 minutes or an hour to get up to the verse that I want to start with. But I do want to say that you ought to read this in its context. In the context, it makes it even much clearer, uh, the points that are being made. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul was writing to a group of people who he had never personally ministered to. He makes that clear in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. And he was writing to them because he was excited that they had received the Lord, that they had been born again. But you know, just as anything, when you get into the second and the third generation, as things pass on, you aren't sure if all of the information is being understood correctly or being presented correctly. If any of you have ever played this little game, I think it's called Gossip, where you have like, I don't know, people sitting in a circle. If you have 10 or 15 people, one person just repeats a phrase and you whisper it in the person's ear. You can't repeat it. You just have to say it one time. And then that person has to relay it to the next and on and on and on, all the way around that circle. You know, I've done that before and I have never, ever yet had the same thing that started come around through 10 or 15 people and be repeated the same. You are going to lose something in communication. And you think it's real simple. Just one sentence. How could you miss it? And yet it just, when you go from generation to generation, when things are passed down, there's little changes and stuff. And if you aren't careful, you could actually come up with something that is totally of a different meaning. Well, the Apostle Paul, because of that truth, he was concerned about these people that he didn't minister to personally. It was done through a second party. And because of that, he just wanted to make sure that they really had all of the things communicated. And he was speaking to them about what was important and the things that they really needed to observe. And in the midst of this, here's what he said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, "...beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy." and vain deceit after the traditions of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now again, I'm breaking right into the midst of this, but I'm just not going to take time to put it all in context. You can study it out on your own and find out that I'm accurate in what I'm saying here. This is really important information. He says, beware. The word beware is actually a compound word, and it comes from two different Words, the second word, where, is actually uh, the word that we get our word war from. It's talking about be at war. Beware. It's It's a military term about being on guard. In other words, if you aren't aware that this is how Satan comes at you, it's it's like an army post or something being unguarded. It would just allow the enemy free access. He'd come and infiltrate you and he could destroy you. He's saying, don't do that. Beware. Be on guard. Be at war. Recognize that Satan is coming to steal the Word of God. He's going to do everything he can to take you away from the truths of God's Word and spoil you. So the first word is beware. And then he says, beware lest any man spoil you. And the word spoil here, we use that in different ways. 
Sometimes we'll refer to meat spoiling or fruit spoiling. And it talks about that it's got impurities and it gets to where it can't be consumed. But this is again a military application. If you look this word up in the Greek, it's actually talking about when, you know, an enemy goes in and conquers another army and then they spoil them. They strip them of everything that's valuable. Their clothes, their shoes, their weapons, any gold, any garments that are worth things, they would go in and those would be the spoils of war. So this is talking about beware, be on guard, lest Satan come and strip you, steal the things that are valuable that God has given. And here's what I want to focus on. He says, beware lest any man spoil you. And here's how it comes. It's through philosophy. You know, if Satan came in a red suit with a pointed tail and a pitchfork and horns, and it was obvious, and he came and threatened your life and was going to physically challenge you or something like that, I tell you, Christians would sit there and fight against him and resist this because that's just so obvious. But the Scripture says that Satan comes in subtle ways, just like he came against Adam and Eve. He chose the most subtle animal of creation. Satan comes with lies and deception. Ephesians chapter 6 says that you have to take unto yourself the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the word wiles there is talking about the lies, the deception, the cunningness, the craftiness of the devil. He's not going to come to you in a, you know, in a red suit with, with a pitchfork and pointed tail and and horns, it's not that obvious. He transforms himself into an angel of light and he comes through these subtle ways. And this is very important. Paul is saying the way that he does this is through philosophy. Now the word philosophy to the average person doesn't mean a thing. Today, most people would think we don't deal in philosophy. They think of philosophy about people like Aristotle back before the time of Christ. And they come up with these, uh, you know, approaches towards life and their philosophical uh, ideas about life and things. And people think, well, I don't have a philosophy today. But all the word philosophy is talking about is life, just a study of life. And you come to these basic conclusions. And I think a word that we would use today for this would be a paradigm or a worldview, an outlook your, um, your, um, you know, your approach towards life is what this is talking about. And Paul here is saying this is how Satan comes against you is through a philosophy, a worldview, an attitude, a paradigm. The difference here between just thought is that a lot of people have these individual thoughts, but they don't weave them together and form a philosophy. They just have these random thoughts. Now, I'm talking primarily here about Christians. They may have some truths from God's Word, and they have this random truth over here, and they have this truth, but they don't weave them together so that it forms a doctrine or a philosophy. And so they have individual truths, but it doesn't really change their whole outlook on life. For instance, here's an example. I taught on this in our Bible school, and I had a woman come to me, that her and her husband were very prosperous and they were doing okay. Uh, they had a good retirement and they weren't even working when they came to Bible school. They, they had all of this money. 
AND I GOT TO TEACHING ABOUT HOW GOD WANTS TO PROSPER THEM. AND THIS WOMAN JUST STRUGGLED, STRUGGLED, STRUGGLED WITH THAT. AND I TALKED TO HER A NUMBER OF TIMES. AND SHE CAME AND TOLD ME, SHE SAYS, I INTELLECTUALLY SEE WHAT YOU'RE SAYING. BUT, AND SHE DIDN'T USE THIS TERMINOLOGY, BUT I'M USING THIS TERMINOLOGY. SHE HAD A PHILOSOPHY OF POVERTY. AND THE REASON FOR IT IS BECAUSE SHE WAS AN OLDER LADY. SHE WAS OLDER THAN ME. SHE GREW UP JUST RIGHT AFTER THE DEPRESSION. HER PARENTS WENT THROUGH THE DEPRESSION AND THEY HAD, they had uh, SUFFERED SO MUCH AND THERE WAS SO f- MUCH FEAR ABOUT THE DEPRESSION, YOU KNOW, IN THE ni- LATE 1920s AND INTO THE 1930s AND THE SOUP KITCHEN AND ALL OF THIS THAT THEY TOOK ALL OF THOSE FEARS AND ALL OF THIS ATTITUDE. IT'S A PHILOSOPHY, A WORLD VIEW, A WAY OF LOOKING AT THINGS. AND THEY INSTILLED THAT IN HER AS A LITTLE GIRL. AND THIS WOMAN, I MEAN, SHE STILL TOOK EVERY JELLY JAR, TURNED IT UPSIDE DOWN, WIPED IT OUT, GOT EVERY BIT OUT OF IT, AND THEN WOULD ACTUALLY PUT WATER IN THERE AND DILUTE IT AND DRAW EVERYTHING OUT. THEY WOULD TAKE THEIR SOAP AND THEY WOULD MELT IT DOWN. WHEN IT GOT DOWN TO WHERE IT WAS A LITTLE BAR, THEY WOULD MELT IT DOWN AND PUT IT TOGETHER AND MAKE ONE NEW BAR. I MEAN, THEY DID THINGS TO SAVE MONEY, WHICH I'M NOT AGAINST SAVING MONEY, AND I THINK THAT THERE'S NOTHING WRONG WITH BEING FRUGAL. BUT there, YOU CAN GO TO AN EXTREME ON THINGS. LIKE I'VE SEEN PEOPLE BEFORE THAT WANTED TO SAVE MONEY AT THE GROCERY STORE AND SO THEY CLIPPED COUPONS. AND I KNEW ONE WOMAN WHO ONE TIME WENT IN AND GOT NEARLY $200 WORTH OF GROCERY WITH LESS THAN $20 BECAUSE SHE USED COUPONS. AND YOU KNOW WHAT? TO A DEGREE, THAT'S OKAY. BUT I'VE SEEN PEOPLE WHO JUST HAD A MINDSET, A PHILOSOPHY. THEY WERE LOCKED INTO THIS AND IT KEPT THEM FROM UNDERSTANDING AND REASONING THAT YOU, YOU KNOW, YOU GO BUY ONE THING AND YOU DRIVE ACROSS TOWN AND SPEND $3 ON GAS ROUND TRIP GOING OUT OF YOUR WAY SO THAT YOU CAN GET TRIPLE COUPONS AND YOU SAVE 30 CENTS. YOU SPENT $3 TO SAVE 30 CENTS. NOW SEE, THAT'S TOTALLY UNRATIONAL, BUT but THERE'S SOME PEOPLE THAT HAVE THIS MINDSET. THEY JUST HAVE A POVERTY MENTALITY. THEY HAVE THIS MINDSET THAT I'VE GOT TO BLEED EVERY PENNY FOR EVERYTHING THAT IT'S WORTH. I'VE GOT TO SQUEEZE IT UNTIL LINCOLN SCREAMS. AMEN. AND BECAUSE OF THAT, THEY JUST HAVE THIS MINDSET THAT OVERRULES uh, REASON. AND SEE, THIS IS WHAT HAD HAPPENED TO THIS WOMAN. THIS WOMAN, HER AND HER HUSBAND, WERE RELATIVELY PROSPEROUS. AND THEY WERE DOING OKAY. AND YET SHE THOUGHT POOR. SHE TALKED POOR. IT WAS INGRAINED INTO HER. AND SHE CAME TO ME SAYING, WHY CAN'T I JUST EMBRACE THAT GOD WANTS TO PROSPER ME AND BLESS ME? AND AS I TALKED TO HER, BASICALLY IT WAS BECAUSE OF THE DEPRESSION ERROR AND THE PHILOSOPHY THAT SHE WAS TAUGHT. SHE HAD INDIVIDUAL truths. SHE COULD QUOTE SCRIPTURES ABOUT HOW GOD WANTED TO BLESS YOU FINANCIALLY, BUT SHE HADN'T WEAVED THEM TOGETHER TO FORM A NEW PHILOSOPHY, A NEW PARADIGM. SHE HADN'T REPLACED HER OLD VALUE SYSTEM AND PHILOSOPHY PARADIGM. AND BECAUSE OF IT, EVEN THOUGH SHE HAD TRUTH, THAT TRUTH COULDN'T GET THROUGH THIS FILTER THAT SHE HAD ON THE INSIDE. AND SEE, there, YOU CAN APPLY THIS TO EVERY AREA OF YOUR LIFE. THERE'S PEOPLE THAT HEAR SCRIPTURES ABOUT THAT IT'S GOD'S WILL FOR YOU TO BE WELL. BY HIS STRIPES WE'RE HEALED. BUT YOU WERE RAISED BASICALLY AS A HYPOCHONDRIAC. YOU'RE AFRAID OF EVERYTHING. YOU'RE A GERMAPHOBIC. YOU'VE HAD THIS HAPPEN AND YOU ARE TAUGHT THAT AS A PHILOSOPHY. AND UNTIL YOU SYSTEMATICALLY DISMANTLE 
this philosophy and develop a new philosophy where it's based on the fact that I will not fear. No plague is going to come nigh my dwelling. Until you reestablish a philosophy, you may hear individual truth and benefit from it to a degree, but the traditions and the doctrines of men will make the word of God of no effect. Mark chapter 7 verse 13. Jesus said that. And you know what? If you have a wrong approach towards things, a wrong philosophy, it stops the power of God's Word in your life. And this is what Paul is saying. He, said, he warned these people, be on guard, be at war. Paul is warning these people that the way Satan comes against you is not in a frontal attack. It's not going to come in some obvious way. If Satan was that obvious, people would just resist him. But he comes subtly and he comes through thoughts. And specifically, the word philosophy is talking about a system of thought, a way of thinking. I think a word that we would use today would be paradigm, worldview, your outlook, those kind of terms. And this is how Satan spoils us. Yes, he uses individual thoughts. He uses lies, but he weaves them into uh, entire systems of deception. And the vast majority of us were raised outside of the Lord. We weren't raised in Christian values, and even people who consider that they were raised with Christian values, it's amazing how much influence our secular society and our ungodly society has had even on Christians. I think that there's a lot of people who were raised in church that were raised with principles that are totally outside of the Word of God. So I believe that most of us established our basic outlook on life uh, from ungodly perspective. And it needs to be retooled. And that's what this whole series is about, is trying to teach people a Christian outlook, a Christian worldview, paradigm, way of looking at things. And again, I want to say that this word philosophy is an old word and people think, well, that's for Aristotle and those people. Well, yes, they were philosophers and they had philosophies, but we still have the same thing today. You know, I remember when I went to Poland and I remember being in Poland and this was back, I'm not sure the exact time, but it was in the mid-80s. It was well before the Berlin Wall came down and they were still under communism and, uh, you know, it was, it was just a shock to my system to go see people living in that type of system with the with the physical needs, the spiritual, the emotional needs, and the fears that they had under communism. And I stood out because I wore my boots. I had a big old belt buckle on. My clothes were American clothes. And uh, everywhere I went, people recognized I was American. So I was talking to the guy that we were with, and he told him, he says, well, there's just lots of things. You just shout out that you're an American. So I borrowed his clothes. I put on his clothes, his shoes, you know, one of the things over there, everything was drab. Like when you went from West Germany into East Germany, this is back before the Berlin Wall came down, it was just like going from color to black and white. In West Germany, there would be buildings that were, you know, blue and yellow and green and different colors, and they had flowers in the um, window boxes, and, and it was just colorful. And you cross Checkpoint Charlie and go into... East Berlin, this is back, you know, during the communist reign. And I mean, it just went to everything was concrete. It was gray. There weren't flowers there. It was just drab. 
And it was like that in these communist countries back at that time. And people never wore colors. They just didn't do it. Everything was drab. Every, there, there was no such thing as color. There was no individuality. Everything was just blended together. So anyway, I borrowed clothes from the guy that we were with. I walked out on the street corner. And I didn't say a word because I knew if I opened my mouth, everybody would know I was an American. And I mean, within five minutes of me standing on the street corner in Poland in the mid-80s, I had a group of people around me going, American, American. I never said a word. I was dressed just like them. I didn't do anything. And yet everybody could tell I was an American. And when I got back inside, I asked the guy I was with, I said, how do they know that I'm an American? And he says, it's your attitude. And I said, I didn't say anything. And he said, you don't understand. People under communism, they were afraid of the KGB. They were afraid of being criticized. They wanted to blend in. You never looked at a person eyeball to eyeball because, you know, you, you've heard people say this, that if you're wanting to see if a person's telling the truth, you look straight into their eyes and you can gauge by their response. There's facial features. There's body language that lets you know whether a person is lying or not. And because of this, when they lived under fear, they wouldn't look at a person eyeball to eyeball. I would just look at a person in the face as they were walking down the street. They said they never walked with their head up looking around, looking at the sky or looking at people coming because it could have been somebody's KGB. You didn't want them looking you in the eye. You'd walk with your head down. You would walk with your shoulders stooped kind of as a sign of submission. That, that whole intimidation and stuff worked itself into the culture and it was affected in the, their body language, in the clothes that they wore, the fact that they wouldn't look at you. Nobody smiled. Nobody ever said hi. You just didn't do those kind of things. And you know, here's my point. I didn't think that I had a philosophy, but being raised in the United States, it was an open culture where you didn't have fear. And because of it, you were, you were friendly. In Texas, we just grew up. talk. I mean, you can go up to a total stranger and talk to them for 15 or 20 minutes like they're your best friend. It was a friendly culture. You just say hi to people. I remember driving down the road in my hometown and, and you waved at every single person like you knew them personally. Did you know what that is? That's a philosophy. It's an approach towards life. You're friendly you believe that people are basically honest, that people are good towards you. And of course, these things vary from place to place. If you're in a big city, you probably were more like over there in the communist country, uh, countries. But you get out into the country and you'll find out that people are more open. They're freer to stop and talk to you. If you're in New York City and you see 500,000 people a day, you can't wave at everyone. You can't smile at everyone. I'm not saying that... One philosophy is better than the other. I'm just saying that, you know what? You do have a philosophy. You do have a way of looking at life. You have an approach towards life. And that philosophy will make you evaluate things. Like, for instance, a person who comes from a place where they aren't open, where they aren't friendly, where you ride subways and there's 500 people in that subway car and it's just busy, you can't talk to every single person and so people tend to stay to themselves and they look at a person who's friendly and comes up and talks to them and does things as intrusive. What's this person trying to sell me? This person's trying to get in. But see, if you come from one of these places where you basically just walk through the day and you'll see a thousand people and never talk to a single one, 
And if you take that attitude and go into the South where people are friendly and you just walk by person after person after person who's saying hi to you and you don't respond and you don't even acknowledge that they're there, it's going to be interpreted because of those people's philosophy, their outlook on life. It's going to be interpreted that you are a rude person, that you aren't a friendly person, and that may not be true at all. It just might be the philosophy that you grew up with. I've actually had situations where people from the north and people from the south come to my minister's conferences, and I remember this one guy who was just a touchy-feely guy. He was very friendly. He had a woman that he went, and she had uh, had some bad things happen, and he had visited with her over a meal at one of my minister's conferences, and he just wanted to bless her, and he went and bought some flowers and had them delivered to her roses or something like that, just to show that he cared and that to bless her and put something in the card about it. Did you know that that woman from the South, who uh, it was just considered rude to her that you would be that open and that affectionate, and she took it as this guy was coming on to her, and she got mad and had words with him. And she was 20 years older than this guy. I talked to him, and man, it was he actually laughed. He was not attracted towards this woman. It was nothing like that. It was just a different philosophy. According to his way of doing things, the way that he was taught, he was just trying to reach out and show some uh, concern for this woman, let her know that she's appreciated. She took it as he was coming on to her. You know, the Bible says to greet one another with a holy kiss. When I go to France... Uh, you greet people and you kiss them on each cheek and stuff. You do that in the United States and we've got a different philosophy. Most people would be offended by that. And yet the Bible says that you're supposed to greet one another with the holy kiss. You know, it wouldn't bother me if a person comes up and in the Lord, I mean somebody that I know, they greet you with a kiss. I have no problems with that. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's scriptural. But... Just because that's my philosophy and this is the way that I feel based on the Word of God, I wouldn't go to you and force my philosophy on you because if you're the type of person that considered that a terrible offense, I could wind up offending you before I ever got an opportunity to share the gospel with you. So I'm just saying all of these things to say that you say, well, I don't believe in philosophy. I don't, we don't have philosophies today. Every one of us have philosophies. You could take some of you and put you in some of these countries that are oppressed and don't have any freedom, and you would stand out like a heeled thumb in the midst of that society because of your philosophy, the freedoms and the liberties that you have. You know, here's another example that being an optimist or a pessimist is a philosophy. I'm just saying all of these things because I'm using a scriptural terminology, Christian philosophy, and yet the word philosophy today has lost its meaning and its application to most people. Some people might say, well, why don't you call this a Christian paradigm or a Christian worldview? Um, I don't know, other than the fact I just like sticking with what the Scripture has to say. And I think that the fact that this word is not clearly defined to most people gives me the opportunity of defining it and making it exactly clear what I'm talking about so I'm using this word by design. But being a pessimist is a philosophy. There are people that because of upbringing, because of uh, situations in their life or whatever, they just see the glass half empty all of the time. They never see it half full. You could take an optimist and a pessimist, sit them side by side, expose them to identical situations, 
and they would have different reactions. See, an optimist and a pessimist, that's a philosophy. Whether you are an encourager or you're the person that's always depressed and if somebody asks you, how are you? You know, they're sorry they asked because you're just going to tell them what the doctor said and you don't understand my dog bit me, my cat ran away, my, you know, all of this stuff. And if you're one of those kind of people, that's a philosophy. Depression is a philosophy. And again, I know that this is contrary to a lot of things in our society today. They say, oh no, it's a chemical imbalance. You don't understand this. And we try and come up with an organic reason for everything. But I tell you, the scripture says, Proverbs 23, 7, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Your life, your emotions, your success or failures are going the way they're going because of the way you think. And even more specifically, not just individual thoughts that you think, but your general outlook, your philosophy upon things. Boy, those are big statements, but all of that's true. And remember Colossians 2, 8, Beware lest any man spoil you, strip you of your good, your valuable things that God has given you through philosophy, through a way of thinking. Look at this passage of Scripture over in Acts chapter 17. You know the word philosophy or philosophers is only used twice in Scripture. That verse that I've already read, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And here again is the second usage of this word in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 17 in verse 18. And it says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountering him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange God because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. This is talking about Paul's ministry. And when he went and preached, there were these philosophers that encountered him. And it specifically talks about two groups called the Epicureans and the Stoics. And you know, I've got the act. I've got the exact statistics on this and I've written it in my life for today's study Bible. I don't have that in front of me right now. So I may not be exactly accurate on this, but the gist of what I'm saying is true. And the Epicureans were people that was started by a philosopher, a man named Epicurus. And I think it was back around 300 years before Christ. And basically this Epicurus had a philosophy that even though he didn't deny that God existed, he didn't believe that if there was a God, it would be more like what we call an agnostic today. He believed that if there was a God, he wasn't involved in human affairs. He might have created the heavens and the earth and then he's on vacation and things are just running like you wind the clock up and let it run. And this Epicurus believed that there was not a God who intervened in our affairs, that there was no heaven or hell that this life is all that there was. There was no accountability to a God. And basically, you just do whatever you want to and the whole purpose of life was pleasure and just indulge every sense and every emotion. Don't hold anything back. Just live life to the fullest. Eat, drink, and be merry. Don't use any wisdom. Don't use any restraint. That was the philosophy of Epicurus. And did you know what? That is basically the philosophy of a large segment of people today. They really believe that. And that philosophy predated Christ by 300 years. That was the Epicureans. And then in contrast to that, there were the Stoics. 
And you know, we still use this word today when we talk about that person as a, it has a stoic personality. You know what that refers back to? The word stoa is the Greek word for porch. And in the marketplace, it was surrounded by apartment buildings, I guess, or houses, whatever you would have called that, that surrounded the marketplace. And they all had balconies and porches. And it was a common practice of the day that the philosophers would come out onto these porches and they would yell out their philosophies to the people who were shopping. And basically, they were like street preachers and they tried to promote their philosophy. And so there was a group of people who were very successful and made an impact, and they called them Stoics based on the people who preached from these porches. That's where the word Stoic came from. And their philosophy was just the opposite of the Epicureans, that pleasure was to be avoided, that pleasure decreased your focus and attention, and it led you into error, and it deceived you and drew you into sin, and if you didn't have any emotions, then you would not be ever disappointed. In a sense, for those of you who are familiar with the Star Trek stuff, the uh, Stoics were the original... Um, man, I just went blank on who that was. But they were the original guy with the pointed ears. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not a great Trekkie. My wife is. But anyway, this guy that had no emotion and he conquered his emotions and wouldn't show it, those were, that's a stoic attitude. And so this is mentioning philosophers such as the Epicureans who indulged every appetite and had pleasure above anything and everything else. And the Stoics, they were just the opposite, that believed that pleasure was evil and it's what destroyed you and diluted your life and confused you and caused all of your problems. And so you just try and do away with all emotions and you don't indulge any of your appetites. See, those are philosophies. And you still have people today. Like I said, the majority of people today, it's all about having fun. It's all about pursuing your desires. And we spend billions, multiplied billions and billions of dollars every year on pursuing pleasure and lust and all of these things, which in their place I think is okay. But I'm saying as a whole, people have an Epicurean philosophy. But then there are other people, such as you can see monks, you can see certain religious orders, mystics and different people and uh, people that just do everything to, de to deny their feelings and emotions and control themselves. We still have these same philosophies going. And if you have, say for instance, a stoic philosophy and you think that pleasure is evil and you can't indulge any of your emotions and feelings, well then that is going to influence every action that you have. Every time that there's an opportunity for something, you are going to run it through that filter. Like, for instance, if you were to watch most of the advertising on television today, it's trying to entice you to buy their product because it's going to make you happy, because it's going to make you successful, and it's all of these carnal emotion, and it's drawing you towards all of these lust and stuff. Stoics would immediately be turned off by that because that's their philosophy. It's their approach on life. You have other people, like say, for instance, if you, had a if you were the Epicurean type where you indulge every emotion and somebody comes up and starts talking about it's time for you to deny yourself. You need to fast. You need to spend time separated from this world and stuff. Well, Epicureans would hate that. So see, your philosophy affects you more than you realize and every one of us has one.
Everyone, uh, being a pessimist or an optimist is a philosophy. Whether you are an encourager, a person who lives to bless other people, or whether you're like a vacuum cleaner that is trying to suck everything you can from other people towards yourself, that's a philosophy. Whether you're a positive person or a negative person is a philosophy. And many of you think, no, it's not a philosophy. I, I've been made this way. This is, this is my natural tendency. Some people think that they're just this type of personality and they can't get free from it. I don't believe that that's so. I do believe that you can categorize people and put them into these personality groups, but not because DNA determines that that's the way you are. People have let the world mold them. It says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. The word conformed there means poured into the mold of this world. That's talking about don't let the world's philosophy dominate you. The way you think determines how you act. In Psalms, or Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, it says, As he thinks in his heart, so is he. Your life is going the direction of your dominant thoughts. And not just individual thoughts, but those thoughts form, they fit together kind of like a, um, you know, a quilt or something. You, you mold them together and it forms a system of thought, a philosophy. And your life is going the direction it's going because of your philosophy. I have seen this hundreds, thousands of times that people had one philosophy. They were fearful. They were negative. They were insecure. They were bitter. They were angry. They were hurt. And on and on you could go with all of the descriptions. Then they meet the Lord. The Lord saves them. They turn to the Lord. And man, they become the most happy, positive person. They are looking on the bright side of things instead of the bad side of things. And it's not because their DNA changed. It's because they changed their mind. They encountered the Lord and they begin to reprogram their self. And again, let's go back to that verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. I think you could say reprogrammed or have your philosophy changed by the renewing of your mind. This is the biggest, um, the biggest need of Christians today is to change the way they think. We have multitudes of people that come to the Lord because somebody spoke to them, the Holy Spirit drew them. They come and they cry out to the Lord for salvation. They get saved. And once they get an assurance of salvation, well, then most Christians think, well, this is for heaven. But right here, until I get to heaven, as long as I'm in this life, I've got to continue to function. And they just default to the way that they were taught, to their value systems, their philosophy that they had before they got saved. And if you are thinking wrong, like say for instance, if you just think that, man, everybody is out to get you, which when I say some of these things, there's people I know that are going to debate this and say, well, that's true, they are out to get me. That is not true. Now, I admit that we live in a fallen world and there are lots of bad things that can happen to even good people. And I'm not saying we live in a utopia, but I am saying that this attitude that everybody's against you, that nobody's for you, and you just have this negative bent that if anything happens bad to anybody, it's going to be you. That's a philosophy, and it's a wrong philosophy. You could switch that when you get born again and recognize that you are blessed of God 
And I could give you hundreds and hundreds of scriptures on that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and Father, which hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are the blessed of the Lord. And when you come to the Lord and get saved, you should change that philosophy to where, you know, if I wash my car, it's going to rain. If I do this, it's not going to work. If I touch it, it's going to turn to dirt. You need to change that philosophy and say, I'm blessed of God. If anybody's blessed, it's going to be me. You know, I've changed my philosophy. And I actually remember being on an airplane one time with a young girl who is her first time to ever fly on an airplane. And she was visibly scared. She started talking to me about it and saying it was her first flight and she was just shaking. And I actually told her, I said, well, you are so blessed to be sitting next to me. And she says, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm blessed. And I began to tell her the promises that God had given me of protection, that the angels would take charge over me and I wouldn't dash my foot against a stone. And I began to show her, I'm blessed. And I said, because you're sitting next to me, you are guaranteed to be safe. And did you know, it totally calmed this girl down. And just because I was so confident in the blessing of God. Those were two separate philosophies sitting side by side in an airplane. And did you know you can change your philosophy? And I know that many of you are thinking, well, I've never thought about things this way. Obviously. Most people think that what happens to them is just random, that you don't have any control over it. It just depends on the roll of the dice. They'll call it fate. They'll call it all kinds of things. And they're just hoping and praying that things don't happen to them. They don't see that they have any control over anything. But again, I could go into many scriptures on this, but I've already used a couple. And basically, your life is going the way of your dominant thoughts, not just individual thoughts. You could have a thought that I know God loves me and wants to bless me. But if that thought doesn't sink and penetrate down in you until it changes your entire outlook, your philosophy towards life, then it won't release its power in you. You've got to take truths from God's Word and form a philosophy, a system of thought, a way of thinking. Man, I I could just make this point over and over because most people don't think this way. They think that I don't have a philosophy. You do have a philosophy. It's not a choice of are you going to have one or not. You do have one. Do you have the right philosophy is the only question. Let me turn over to the book of Genesis and show you how important this is. And this is going back to the time of Adam and Eve and when Satan came against them and tempted them. And this is really significant. If you will go back in Scripture and find the first time that something happened, it's nearly always the same way that things work for us today. You can go back and find the first time that murder happened on the face of the earth, Genesis chapter 4, and look at this. And you know what? The same things that occasioned Cain to kill his brother Abel are the same things that cause people to kill people today. And you can learn lessons from it. So this is the very first time that Satan came to tempt mankind. And this will also tell you how he's coming to tempt you. And this fits perfectly with what it says in Colossians 2.8 about beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. 
The way that you get spoiled, have the treasures that Jesus has given you stripped from you, is through the way you think. It's through lies and through deceptions. And that's exactly what Satan did here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this serpent went on to lie to Eve. And even though it's talking about that this snake is the one that was doing the talk. And I know that this is strange to people and people think, man, you know, how can you believe this? I believe that originally it was not unusual for this snake to be talking. For instance, you can see right here that part of the curse on the snake was it used to walk upright. And yet part of the curse was that it would lose its legs and that it would crawl on its belly and eat the dust of the ground. Snakes used to be different than what we see them right now. And so based on where we are at this moment, people look at this and think, how weird is this? You know, this is the way that God originally created. I believe that animals were able to talk. Uh, snakes were able to walk. I don't have a problem with that. That's not a problem to me. Um, so anyway, I believe this. But when it says that the serpent talked to Eve, it says over in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the devil is the father of of all lies. He's a liar and the father of all lies. And so when this serpent was lying, I believe that we can see clearly that Satan used this serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. It wasn't just an animal that did this, but it was an animal that was under the control of Lucifer that used the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. And here's my point is, he chose the most subtle animal of the field is what it says. You know, if you were just wanting to come and draw Adam and Eve into sin and get them to rebel at God, why didn't you pick the strongest animal? Why didn't you pick a mammoth or something and go and have this mammoth just put his foot on Eve's head and say, you eat of this fruit or I'll smush you like a watermelon? Why didn't he do that? Well, there's multiple reasons, but one of them is he had no authority no power to force Adam and Eve to do anything. Adam and Eve were the gods of this world. They were in absolute control. And no animal, Satan himself, had no ability to force Adam and Eve to do anything. He only could come and use lies and deception. Did you know that this is still the way that it is today? In Ephesians chapter 6, it says... Uh, take unto you the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there means deception, cunning, craftiness, the lies of the devil. Satan's only power against you is to deceive you with wrong attitudes, wrong values, wrong thoughts. That's why I'm teaching on a Christian philosophy, a Christian system of thought. And so Satan came through the most subtle animal. He didn't use a lion. A lion could have come and roared and bared his teeth and threatened to have killed Adam and Eve, but he didn't do that because lions at that time were peaceful for one thing. They weren't carnivorous. They ate just vegetation. And did you know what? It was just impossible. Satan could not come and force Adam and Eve to do anything. And Satan can't force you and me either. The way he comes against us is through the way that we think. And he came to Adam and Eve and he chose the most cunning, crafty, sly, deceptive animal 
Now, the scripture doesn't explain why the serpent was the most cunning or crafty animal. I don't have an answer to that. The scripture didn't choose to reveal it, and so I would be wrong to speculate. But it nonetheless makes the point that he didn't pick the biggest animal, the strongest animal, the most intimidating animal. There wasn't any of these kind of things. He came with deception. And this is exactly the same way that Satan is coming against us. And this is what Paul warned against when he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You've got to recognize that the values, the statements that you hear day in and day out, Satan is constantly bombarding you, trying to get you to embrace and accept wrong values instead of what God's Word says. Boy, this is super important that you understand it. And notice what the serpent said here in Genesis chapter 3. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every... Uh, tree of the garden. You know what he began to do? He came to attack God's Word. God had said, it wasn't written down in a Bible format, but God said in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. That was the word of God. It wasn't written in a Bible. It wasn't recorded on a page, but it was the word spoken out of God's mouth. It was a command. It was instructions. And the very first thing that Satan did through this serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is come and attack the word of God. And I tell you, there are so many lessons to learn here. If you had a philosophy, a way of thinking, a paradigm, a worldview, a system of thought that was based exclusively on the Word of God, and if all you did was believe the Word of God, Satan would be dead in the water. He'd be up the creek without a paddle. He would be unable to have any influence on you. Satan is not some power that comes and overwhelms you and makes you do something. The devil doesn't make you do anything. Just like he did with Adam and Eve, he comes against your philosophy. He comes against the Word of God and tries to get you to start thinking differently than God's Word. That's how Satan does everything. For instance, there's some people that think, well, I just got lust on the inside of me and it's not based on anything I think. That's not true. I guarantee you, if we didn't live in a culture that used sex to sell toothpaste and to sell cars and to do everything, I mean, they just, they just put things in front of you, your eyes that cause you to lust. I'm saying a person who's not born again has a propensity to sin because we have a fallen nature. But it is amplified and magnified a million times over by the things that we see, watch, the attitudes. If you could take a person and just somehow or another isolate them from all of the corruption that is in our society today, I think they still would have a propensity. They would have a potential for living in sexual immorality, but it would be diminished a million times over. For you to think that your problem with lust is something that you just can't control and it has nothing to do with what you've done or thought 
IS ABSOLUTELY DENYING THE TRUTHS OF THE WORD OF GOD. WHAT YOU THINK AND HOW YOU THINK DETERMINES COMPLETELY WHAT WILL HAPPEN TO YOU. AND SO SEE, SATAN WASN'T ABLE TO COME AND FORCE ADAM AND EVE TO SIN THROUGH SOME ACTION OR THROUGH SOME uh, INTIMIDATION, BUT INSTEAD HE HAD TO COME AND DECEIVE THEM. AND LIKEWISE, THAT'S EXACTLY THE WAY IT IS WITH US. YOU KNOW, THE SCRIPTURE SAYS THIS IN 2 CORINTHIANS CHAPTER 11. HE SAYS IN VERSE 3, BUT I FEAR LEST BY ANY MEANS AS THE SERPENT BEGUILED EVE THROUGH HIS SUBTLETY, SO YOUR MIND SHOULD BE CORRUPTED FROM THE SIMPLICITY THAT IS IN CHRIST. AND HERE HE'S SAYING THAT HE FEARS THAT SATAN IS GOING TO COME AGAINST THEM THE EXACT SAME WAY HE CAME AGAINST EVE. AND IT'S NOT THROUGH INTIMIDATION AND OVERPOWERING, BUT RATHER THROUGH SUBTLETY, THROUGH LIES, DECEPTION. IT ALL STARTS WITH THOUGHTS. IF YOU WANT TO SEE YOUR LIFE SUCCEED, YOU'RE GOING TO HAVE TO CHANGE THE WAY YOU THINK. THAT IS SO SIMPLE AND YET IT'S PROFOUND. AND MANY CHRISTIANS ARE PRAYING THAT GOD WILL SET THEM FREE PHYSICALLY, THAT THEY'LL BE HEALED, THAT THEY'LL BE PROSPERED FINANCIALLY, THAT THEIR MARRIAGE WILL WORK, THAT THEY'LL BECOME PROSPEROUS IN THEIR BUSINESS, THAT THEY'LL GET ALONG IN RELATIONSHIPS. THEY'RE PRAYING FOR ALL OF THESE CHANGES, AND YET THEY DON'T CHANGE THE WAY THAT THEY THINK. THAT'S WHAT MAKES CHANGE HARD. BUT SEE, IF YOU JUST GOT INTO THE WORD, PLANTED THE TRUTHS OF GOD'S WORD AND MEDITATED ON IT AND SPENT ENOUGH TIME TO WHERE IT CHANGED THE WAY YOU THOUGHT, THEN PROVERBS 23, 7 SAYS, AS HE THINKS IN HIS HEART, SO IS HE. THE WAY YOU THINK IN YOUR HEART WILL EVENTUALLY BECOME THE WAY YOU EXPERIENCE THINGS IN YOUR LIFE. BUT MANY CHRISTIANS ARE JUST PRAYING FOR CHANGE EXTERNALLY WITHOUT CHANGING THE WAY YOU THINK. ROMANS CHAPTER 12, VERSE 2 SAYS, DON'T BE CONFORMED TO THIS WORLD, BUT BE TRANSFORMED BY THE RENEWING OF YOUR MIND. THE WAY YOU GET TRANSFORMED, AND THAT GREEK WORD THERE FOR TRANSFORMED IS metamorpho. IT'S THE WORD WE GET METAMORPHOSIS FROM. AND IF YOU WANT A METAMORPHOSIS, LIKE A LITTLE WORM SPINS A COCOON AND THEN COMES OUT A BUTTERFLY, IF YOU WANT TO BE CHANGED FROM A WORM TO A BUTTERFLY, IF YOU WANT THAT KIND OF TRANSFORMATION, IT COMES BY THE RENEWING OF YOUR MIND. AND NOT JUST INDIVIDUAL THOUGHTS, BUT I'M TRYING TO PUT IT TOGETHER THAT THIS IS TALKING ABOUT TAKING THESE TRUTHS FROM GOD'S WORD AND CHANGING YOUR PHILOSOPHY, YOUR WAY OF LOOKING AT THINGS, YOUR, your VIEW, YOUR OUTLOOK ON LIFE. AND SO THIS IS WHAT SATAN DID WITH ADAM AND EVE. HE CHOSE THE MOST SUBTLE ANIMAL AND CAME AND HERE IS A... THIS IS A PHENOMENAL POINT. THIS IS SO SIMPLE. YOU'RE GOING TO HAVE TO HAVE SOMEBODY TO HELP YOU TO MISUNDERSTAND WHAT I'M SAYING. BUT THIS IS POWERFUL. THE VERY FIRST THING THAT THE SERPENT SAID TO EVE, HE SAYS, HATH GOD SAID, YOU SHALL NOT EAT OF EVERY TREE OF THE GARDEN. HE ATTACKED THE INTEGRITY OF GOD'S WORD. GOD'S WORD IS TRUTH. JOHN CHAPTER 17, VERSE 17, JESUS WAS PRAYING TO HIS FATHER IN THE GARDEN OF GETHSEMANE THE NIGHT BEFORE HIS CRUCIFIXION. AND HE SAID, THY WORD IS TRUTH. GOD'S WORD IS TRUTH. IT IS THE PLUMB LINE THAT WE USE TO ESTABLISH WHAT TRUTH IS. YOU KNOW, that's, THAT'S A GREAT DESCRIPTION FOR ME. SOME OF YOU, MAYBE SOME OF THE LADIES OR PEOPLE THAT AREN'T CARPENTERS AND DON'T DO THINGS, THAT MAY NOT APPLY MUCH TO YOU, BUT YOU KNOW, I'VE BEEN BUILDING A LITTLE SHED AND STUFF, AND I'VE HAD TO USE PLUMB LINES TO GET AN EXACT TRUE VERTICAL. IN OTHER WORDS, THIS IS HOW YOU SQUARE EVERYTHING. THE WHOLE BUILDING IS BUILT ON BEING SQUARE AND VERTICAL AND ALL OF THESE THINGS, AND YOU HAVE TO USE A PLUMB LINE. 
It's accurate. And see, Satan comes against the Word of God because it is the plumb line. It is the truth. It's the standard by which we compare everything to it. And sad to say, there are, I'd say, the majority of people, even the majority of Christians, do not use the Word of God as a plumb line. They don't use it as an absolute truth. Many Christians, well, let me just rephrase that. I guess all of us establish basically our foundational core beliefs before we got born again. We had an outlook, a way of living and doing things before we got born again. And when people get born again, they to varying degrees commit themselves to the Lord. But there are a lot of people who have received salvation. I believe they're genuinely born again and they're headed to heaven. But they have not committed themselves completely to the Word of God. There are many Christians that believe that the Word of God cannot be trusted. It's not accurate. They believe that it was inspired by God, but it went through man, and therefore there's all kinds of inaccuracies in it, contradictions, and so they just look at it as a vague representation of what God's will is and what God's truth is, but they don't look at it as being accurate. That is absolutely untrue. And I'm telling you, if that is your philosophy... If that is the view, the attitude that you have towards the Word of God, then you aren't going to honor the Word of God. You will not use it for what it's intended to do. Everything is supposed to be compared to what God tells us in His Word. And if you still value the fact that you were raised this way, and this is your set of values, and this is the way your family has always done. Like I was over in England recently, and... I was talking to one of the guys on my board over there. Actually, it was uh, David Hardesty, my general manager, was talking to one of our board members, and he was asking you know, for some information about the political situation in England and talking about the conservative versus the liberal, etc. And he was talking to this board member, and he says, so how do you vote? And he says, oh, I always vote this way. And he gave this uh, thing that basically embraces all of the liberal, the more... Uh, ungodly, the more immoral people. And he says, I always vote that way. And David said, well, why do you vote? And he says, I never thought about it. He says, that's the way my dad was. That's what I was always taught. I was taught that you do this. And here this guy is, probably 40-something, 50 years old, and had never taken the truths of the Word of God and let it affect his political, moral views. Now, I'm probably oversimplifying some things, but I think you understand what I'm saying, that there's people that they are a Democrat or a Republican because their parents were, because this is just the way that they were raised to be. That is wrong. You need to let the Word of God become your plumb line, become your standard of right and wrong, and if the Word says it, then that settles it. And it doesn't matter what you were taught, what you embraced before. Maybe you had this feeling about uh, homosexuality, about divorce and remarriage, about uh, all kinds of issues, about abortion and this and that, and this is the way that you were, and it's your philosophy, and you just automatically accept that, and you won't listen to anything differently. You need to go to the Word of God, and you need to reevaluate every philosophy, every paradigm, every outlook that you have, and you need to use the Word of God as a standard, a plumb line to use and compare it to that. And if what 
You believe what you have been taught, what you've done your entire life does not line up with the Word of God. Then Romans 3, 4 says, You let God be true and every man a liar. You exalt God's Word above the Word of your parents, above the Word of your pastor. Again, I'm not telling you to rebel at authority, but there's a lot of preachers that don't preach the truth. They preach social issues. The Word of God should be the absolute standard. You know, the things that I'm teaching here on on television, I encourage people. I'm trying to influence you, and I'm trying to get you to adopt these values and stuff. But if I say something contrary to the Word of God, you ought to reject it. The Word of God should be more important than my Word, than the Word of any person. The Word of God is the absolute standard. See, when Satan came to eat, and he said, Hath God said, You shall not eat? of every tree in the garden. And when he began to start sowing doubt, is about God's Word really true? Can you really trust what God said? And then as we go on through this thing, I'll cover this later, but he actually got into saying the reason God said that is because he doesn't want you to prosper. God is kind of trying to keep you from reaching your full potential. And you begin to start casting doubt on the Word of God and exalting your own opinion above the opinion of God that was expressed in the Word. When Satan started doing that, the proper philosophy for Eve to have had would have been to say, you know what, there's only one God and I am not Him. This is what He said. It is not for me to evaluate why He said it, wonder if He was accurate, if He was correct, etc., I just need to submit myself to God's Word. That settles it. End of discussion. Be gone. If she had done that, then you know that this sin and the uh, transgression that plunged the entire human race into sin wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened then. Maybe he had come back for a second round or something. But that would have ended the entire problem if she would have just had this philosophy that God's Word is accurate. I am not going to question it. I will not contradict it. God's Word is absolute authority in my life. And let me point something out right here. I, I was raised in the Baptist church and I was in a very strict part of, you know, there's a lot of different type of Baptist, but I was in a strict group of Baptist and they actually taught that women could not teach men. They would allow women to teach like male children but a woman could not teach a man. They were very restrictive in all of this. And they actually used this scripture to say that the reason Satan came to Eve and tempted Eve instead of Adam. And if you'll read right on down in verse 6 and verse 7 in Genesis chapter 3, you'll find out that it says that Eve took and ate of the fruit and gave to her husband who was with her. So Adam and Eve were both there, but the temptation was directed towards Eve. And I've had people before say that the reason Satan came and tempted Eve is because the the woman is inferior to the man. She is not as smart as the man. She needs a man to oversee her and be a covering. And I was taught those kind of things. And there's people that still believe that. But you know, I don't believe that's it at all. And I'm not going to get off into a male versus female thing right here. But here's what I believe. Here's the reason that Satan came against Eve. Because if you go back into Genesis chapter 2 
It says in verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, not Eve, but man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone, etc. And he created Eve. The point is that this command not to eat of the tree wasn't given to Eve. It was given to Adam before Eve was formed. And Eve actually had this command from God secondhand. And I believe that that's the reason that Satan came to Eve is because this command was not firsthand. She didn't have it direct from God. She had it secondhand through Adam And you will recognize that any time you get information through somebody, there is the potential that it was distorted, that maybe something was left out, maybe something was added, maybe, uh, you know, it's not exactly the way it should be. And it leaves you more susceptible to doubt when you are uh, hearing what somebody else said that somebody else said, when it's secondhand information. And my point here is that, see, Eve, if... Well, let me say it this way. If Adam had been the one that Satan came to, I think it would have been easier for Adam to reject this temptation by saying, look, I was there. God told me this. I know exactly what God said. This is God who spoke it to me. End of the discussion, over. And that would have been the end of the temptation. But see, because it was Eve, it was possible that she thought, well, I wonder if Adam actually told me everything. I wonder if he distorted this. Is this actually accurate? And, it, and she was more susceptible to doubt about what God had said. The application of that to us is that, see, you have to make the Word of God personal to you. There are many people, even many Christians, who read the Bible and you read it as people writing something about God. And there might be little bits of truth in here. There may be some things that are inspired of God, but basically you look at this as just people writing these things and not God writing to you. Let me turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 and uh, share this verse with you. I'm not sure if it's 2 Peter or 1 Peter. Well, let me look at this real quickly. It's Second Peter chapter 1, and Peter was trying to validate that the things he was saying were not uh, just things that he came up with on his own, but he was moved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm nearing the end of my life, and I'm actually going to go to great effort to write these things down so that when I am deceased, you will still have these truths that God inspired me to write. And so he's trying to validate that what he is saying isn't just his opinion, but it's literally God speaking through him. And he begins to start talking about a number of things. One of them he mentions is that he literally was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus radiated light and a visible cloud came over them and an audible voice came and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The reason he quotes those things is, again, to give authenticity, validation, to what he's saying as being inspired of God. But then look at this. After, after all of these miraculous things that Peter experienced as one of the disciples of Jesus, he said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, 
What could be more sure than seeing Jesus physically, see Him radiate light, hear an audible voice from God? What could be more sure than all of that? He goes on to say in the next verse, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. And he's saying that the Word of God is actually more sure, more established than what he saw with his physical eyes, than the audible voice that he heard out of heaven. Man, that is powerful. What Peter is doing is saying that these words, the Word of God, is inspired of God, not just vaguely, but I mean down to the last detail. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians and basically based it on one letter of one word. He said that Jesus was the seed, singular, not the seeds, plural, of David. He wasn't talking about all of the descendants of David, but when these prophecies were made, they were made to David and his seed, singular, and he built the entire book of Galatians on one letter of one word. That is how much you can trust the Word of God down to the last little dotting of an I or crossing of a T. It is accurate in all of its details. And this is what Peter is saying. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, For this prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Man, that is a a statement by the Apostle Peter that the Word of God is accurate. It is not human writings. People wrote it, but they were writing under the inspiration of God. This phrase here where it says, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, it literally means as they were divinely inspired, or one translation puts it that every scripture was God-breathed. God inspired, put it in the hearts of people, and they wrote, and the things that are written are accurate down to even a whether a word is plural or singular. And I know that there's people, there's Christians who are saying, oh, now that is just a little far-fetched. There's all kinds of contradictions and inconsistencies in the Word of God. I do not believe that. You know, there are things that appear to be contradictions, But if you continue to study the Word of God out instead of contradicting, it actually expounds upon it. The Word of God is a commentary upon itself. For instance, let me just take the scripture in Exodus chapter 20 where the Lord gave the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is that you shall not kill. And in the New Testament, Jesus quoted that and He says, you shall do no murder. Now see, some people think, well, those are different. There's a difference between killing and murder. For instance, if you kill an animal, that's killing. It's not murder, but it's killing. And some people think that instead of the Scripture forbidding killing, what it's actually doing is forbidding murder, where you go and kill a human being with malice in your heart. You planned it. It's not talking about negligent homicide and things like this, but it's talking about murder. And so some people cite that as an example of how the Bible contradicts itself. But you know, that is really a good example that the word murder or the word kill do not express fully what God wanted to say. The Greek language, the Hebrew language, is much more descriptive than our English language. You know, we use the word love and we say, I love my wife, I love ice cream, I love my dog, I love football, all in the same 
Uh, we use the same word to describe all those things. But hopefully you love your wife and your dog differently. Amen. The, see, these other languages have different types of love. Like there is a, a, uh, an eros love, which is talking about the physical, natural love. There is a phileo love that is talking about a brotherly love for a sibling or for a friend. There is the agape love that is God's kind of love. And so, see, there are different types of words in other languages for this, but the English is not quite as descriptive. So my point is that if God would have just said, Thou shalt do no murder in Exodus and in the New Testament when Jesus quoted that, that wouldn't have accurately portrayed the whole thing. Because, see, you could actually uh, kill people. Like, say, for instance, take some kind of a large corporation that is dumping toxic chemicals into a stream or into the air. And they, they're aware of it. It's not murder. It wouldn't be classified as murder, but it would be classified as negligent homicide. I believe that the Scripture talks about that. And as you compare other Scriptures with this, there was a law in the Old Testament that if you had a balcony on the top of your house, that you had to put a railing around it for the protection. And if you didn't have a railing and somebody fell off, you were liable for their death. If you did have a railing and they fell off, then you were free. So see, that shows that you didn't go out and you didn't plan on murdering somebody. It could have been your child. It could have been your grandchild that fell off. And you didn't plan it. It's not murder, but it is. You still are responsible. See, if you just would have said, thou shalt not murder, it wouldn't have done that. But if you put thou shalt not kill and then thou shalt not murder and you understand that they don't contradict, but rather they complement each other and then you put these other scriptures with it, by taking the scriptures and looking together, you get a fuller understanding of what God is saying than if you'd have just used one word. So often people will take something like that to say that, see, the Bible contradicts itself. It doesn't contradict itself. It complements itself. There are these apparent contradictions in there that put things in balance. So anyway, I say those things to defend the Word of God. People will just cite something and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible is just a, a document that was written by man. There may be some inspiration in it, but you can't trust it. That is not true. And then there's people that will come up and say, well, you might have been able to trust the original documents, but since that time... We've got translations, and of course, in the translation and in the copies, things have been lost, and uh, you can't approach the Word of God as being infallible and accurate in every detail. Well, let me just point this out, that when Jesus quoted from Scripture, Jesus didn't quote from the original Hebrew copies. He quoted from the Greek Septuagint, which was a translation of the original Hebrew documents that were written by Moses, the Pentateuch, and then the prophecies and the Psalms and things like this. Jesus was quoting from a translation and he never one time inferred that this translation was somehow less than the actual original, original documents. You know, God has been able to preserve the truths that he... Um, communicated through translations. Now, I don't want to get off and teach on translations, but let me just say that I am not a, f a fan of every translation. And you know what? I believe that the King James Bible is inspired because it inspires me. I don't believe it's the only Bible. I do read others. I wouldn't criticize a person who would go... You know, I believe this, that if you don't read the Bible, 
because it's got these and thous in it and you just got a prejudice and you cannot wrap your brain around that. Well, then go read another one that doesn't have all of those old English words in it and you'd be better off reading a modern translation that I dislike uh, less or I like less than the King James. You'd be better off to read that and read something than to, you know, have the King James and never read it because you struggle with it. So I don't criticize people who read other translations. You'd be better off if you just read the Word a lot. But I believe that this one is good. I believe that there are some others. I'm not going to mention all of them, but I believe that there are some others that are very accurate in their detail. But the point is that, see, people have a paradigm, a philosophy, that the Word of God is not accurate, that it can't be trusted, that you can't just base your whole life on it. I believe you can, and I do. And I act on this 100%. And people can criticize me and say, well, man, you are just a little bit uh, out there with this. But you know what? I would stack my results by studying and believing the Word of God up against your results. I'm seeing God do miraculous things like even raising my son from the dead after being dead for five hours because I literally believe that this is God speaking. The Holy Spirit has confirmed the Word to me. He has spoken scriptures to me. The scriptures in Jeremiah chapter 1 that He said to Jeremiah, and God said that before I formed you in the womb, before you came forth out of your mother's belly, I sanctified you, I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. I can show you an exact place at the Kingsley Place Apartments in Dallas, Texas, in 1973, where God spoke those exact words to me. And the next verse says, but Jeremiah said, But, ah, Lord God, I'm a child, I cannot speak. And that's exactly how I responded. I was an introvert. I couldn't talk to people. And I said, God, I can't do it. I can't be a prophet to the nations. And the next verse says, Say not you're a child, because you will go. You will speak. You will do what I have called you to do. And don't be afraid of their faces, or I'll confound you before them. God spoke those exact verses to me. And that night in, in John Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Because you speak this word, I'll make my word in your mouth fire, and the people would, and it shall devour them. God spoke that to me. God touched my mouth. God put his words in my mouth. And you're just too late to tell me that that isn't from God. God used this. God spoke those words to me. This word is divinely inspired. This is not a book of man. This is a book from God written through man. But it is God's word to me. And I believe it. And because of that paradigm, because of that philosophy, when something comes to me that contradicts God's word, I don't care what it is. I don't care how many degrees a person has behind their name. If you violate the Word of God, I am not going to take your word. I'm not going to honor what you have to say more than I honor what God's Word says. I believe that that is a Christian philosophy that every Christian should have. Man, that's powerful.